Hey everybody, welcome back to Firewalls Don't Stop Dragons. I'm your host, Gary Parker, and uh, we've got a new show for you this week, but it's a little different, as I promised uh, a couple weeks ago. Uh, we're going to talk about this new thing called Google's Privacy Sandbox, and they're... Google published a note about some what they call privacy-protecting features they're going to be adding to the most popular browser on the planet, Google's Chrome browser, and... They've proposed some new technologies and made this long argument about how this is necessary and a way to move forward so that we can still have ads that are supposedly still protect your privacy, um, when in reality, it's really not. <laughs> it's really about protecting their business model. And so the EFF, the Electronic Frontier Foundation, has a really nice write-up of this, and they kind of walk through and, and, and talk about each of the things that's in Google's proposal, the good, the bad, and the ugly. And uh, for today's news, uh, I'm actually just going to go through that article. And there's a lot of really good information in there, and I'd like to kind of explain some of the stuff to you as, as it goes, because even though it's not super technical, uh, it still makes reference to some things that I think might lose some people. And it's it's a really good look at what Google is proposing uh, and a really good takedown of what is really most likely going on behind the scenes and how it can still be abused and how it's really not privacy protecting. There haven't been any really major news stories in the last week, so I feel comfortable skipping straight to this. So with that, let's get into uh, let's get into Google's privacy sandbox. Okay, so again, this is a, a really nice article from the Electronic Frontier Foundation. I will definitely put this link in the show notes. Uh, but if you go to EFF.org, uh, it's probably one of the top articles there. You could probably just search on Sandbox or Privacy Sandbox, quickly find the article. But I'm basically going to read you the <laughs> read you the whole thing because it's really good. covers a lot of really good ground. And I want to explain some of the things that are in there. So Let's, let's get into this article. So I'm going to start reading the article, and then I'll break out every once in a while to kind of give you my take or explain some things. All right, here we go. Last week, Google announced a plan to, quote, build a more private web, unquote. The announcement post was, frankly, a mess. The company that tracks user behavior on over two-thirds of the web said that, quote, privacy is paramount to us in everything we do, unquote. By the way, that was the very first sentence of this, of this plan, and as soon as I read that, I I sent out a tweet like, you've got to be kidding me. Privacy is hardly paramount at Google. Um, I almost stopped reading the whole thing right then. But anyway, uh, I did read the original article, but the, um, EFF's take on it is the better read. So let me keep going from, from uh, EFF's article. Google not only doubled down on its commitment to targeted advertising, but also made the laughable claim that blocking third-party cookies, by far the most common tracking technology on the web and Google's tracking method of choice, will hurt user privacy. I'll, I'll read that again. And they said that they made, Google makes the claim that blocking third-party cookies, something that I've talked about over and over on this show whenever I talk about browsing and privacy protections, Google is arguing that by blocking those, you are hurting user privacy. And here's the article goes on to explain. By taking away the tools that make tracking easy, it contended, Developers like Apple and Mozilla will force trackers to resort to quote-unquote opaque techniques like fingerprinting. Of course, lost in that argument is the fact that the, mark, that the makers of Safari and Firefox have shown serious commitments to shutting down fingerprinting, and both browsers have made real progress in that direction. Furthermore, a key part of 
The Privacy Sandbox proposal is Google's own belated plan to stop fingerprinting. All right, so let me stop there. So fingerprinting we've talked about before. Basically what fingerprinting does is it allows third parties, the, uh, the websites that you visit, because when you go to a website, when I go to amazon.com or wherever I go, um, my web browser, Firefox, Safari, Chrome, Edge, whatever, sends a lot of information to that website. And the, the idea being it sends a lot of information about me and my computer, most of my computer, like what's, what size is my screen? How big is my screen? Like am I on a mobile phone or am I on a laptop or am I on a really big screen? It, it'll tell me what the browser is. Is it Mozilla? Is it, uh, you know, is it Firefox? Is it uh, Safari or whatever? It'll tell you what the browser is and what version of the browser is. It will tell it some information about what operating system I'm running. So am I on a Mac? Am I on Windows? What version of those am I on? It tells me what fonts that I have installed so that if it's going to send back a page with some fancy fonts, it might know that, well, this guy can't read those fancy fonts, so I'll send a substitute instead. All these things are designed to be helpful, to, to tell those websites you know, information that would help it send back the best web page to you. Unfortunately, a lot of the information that sends back in bulk, if you take it all together, looks pretty unique. Like if you think about how many people on this planet have a Mac laptop with my exact screen dimensions using this exact version of the browser, running this exact version of Mac OS with these exact set of extensions that are installed in my browser with this set of system fonts, and it just goes on and on. There's there's even more information, like how many, what's the color depth of my screen? All these things. When you add all these things together, it becomes like a fingerprint. It's unique. When you when you look at all these things together, um, it it can uniquely identify me. Uh, if you want to look at into that further, and I've talked about this before, go to EFF's uh, Panopticlick site. That's P A N O P T I C L I C K. Panopticlick. Uh, if you go to panopticlick.eff.org, uh, you can run uh, fingerprinting and it will actually test you and then show you uh, why your browser almost assuredly is unique among all the, all the others that it has seen. Uh, when you run it, go ahead and there's a little, it gives you a short table. Um, and then under there is a link and you click the, to get the details. And I would look at those details uh, and then you'll get a better idea. Anyway. So basically what Google is saying is like, hey, if you make it hard to do the easy stuff, then, then you know, that all the people that are dying to track you, like Google, are going to have to resort to these other things that are harder to stop, like fingerprinting. So, which is a horrible argument. Basically saying, you got to let us track you somehow, so why don't you just make it easy? So let's go back to the article. But hidden behind the false equivalencies and the privacy gaslighting are a set of real technical proposals. Some are genuinely, genuinely good ideas. Others could be unmitigated privacy disasters. This post will look at the specific proposals under Google's new privacy sandbox umbrella and talk about what they would mean for the future of the web. So this is se separated into the good and the bad and the ugly. Let's start with the good first. Uh, it says the good. Fewer CAPTCHAs fighting fingerprints. So before I begin, you may, you may be familiar with the term CAPTCHA, and this is in all caps. It's C-A-P-T-C-H-A. CAPTCHA is how you pronounce that. And if you're not familiar with the term, you're definitely familiar with what it is. And that is when you go to a website website and you try to submit something and it says, prove to me that you're not a robot. And it pops up this picture and says, you know, show me all the cars in this picture. Click on all the parts of this picture that have a car in it, or it gives you a, a blurred, twisted, distorted word or number. And you're supposed to type that in. The whole purpose of that being is that they're trying to say basically that it would be really hard for a computer to figure this out but a human should be able to figure this out. 
so by making by giving you that test that captcha uh they're trying to prove that you're a human and not something automated trying to uh, automate this process of whatever it is they don't want you to automate uh, and by the way uh, a little tidbit for you that's actually an acronym captcha stands for completely automated public touring test to tell computers and humans apart <laughs> now touring in this case is actually alan touring the guy made famous for uh, working on the uh, the British crew that helped break the German Enigma encryption techniques, uh, and a famous famous uh, computer science guy, Alan Turing, has done a lot of stuff. And anyway, and the Turing test is a way. The, the Turing test basically says if you can have a text chat with something and you can't tell if the thing at the other end is a computer or a human, then it has passed the Turing test. Uh, anyway, so a long, that's a lot of details for you. <laughs> let's get back to the article. All right, it says, uh, let's start with the proposals that might actually help users. First up is the Trust API. This proposal is based on Privacy Pass, a privacy-preserving and frustration-reducing alternative to CAPTCHAs. Instead of having to fill out CAPTCHAs all over the web, with the Trust API, users will be able to fill out a CAPTCHA once and then use Trust tokens to prove that they are human in the future. The tokens are anonymous and not linkable to one another, so they won't help Google or anyone else track users. Since Google is the single largest CAPTCHA provider in the world, its adoption of the Trust API would be a big win for users with disabilities, users of Tor, and anyone else who hates clicking on grainy pictures of storefronts. Google's proposed privacy budget for fingerprinting is also exciting. Browser fingerprinting is the practice of gathering enough information about a specific browser instance to try to uniquely identify a user. Usually this is accomplished by combining easily accessible information like the user agent string, and the user agent is uh, uh, the type and version of your browser and usually your operating system as well, all in one thing. So anyway, for combining easily accessible information like the user agent string with data from powerful APIs like the HTML canvas. Don't worry about what that is. Since fingerprinting extracts identifying data from otherwise useful APIs, and APIs and application programming interface, uh, from uh, it can be hard to stop without hamstringing legitimate web apps. As a workaround, Google proposes limiting the amount of data that websites can access through potentially sensitive APIs. Each website will have a budget, and if it goes over that budget, the browser will cut off its access. Most websites won't have any use for things like the HTML canvas, so they should be unaffected. Sites that need access to powerful APIs, like video chat services and online games, will be able to ask the user for permission to go over budget. The devil will be in the details, but the privacy budget is a promising framework for combating browser fingerprinting. All right, so let me stop. So that is a really interesting idea. Um, so again, if you go to Panopticlick, you'll see what I mean. If you go to the Panopticlick site and say, test my browser, and then click on the details link to, to blow out all the different things that it's looking at, you'll see the how much how much information your browser is giving up willingly about you. Uh, not your name and address and things, but basically it gives up enough information about your computer and your browser that if you ever go to another site, they can fingerprint you and say, okay, this guy is the same as that guy. And, and, and know that, <laughs> that you've gone from this site to that site. Um, and eventually if they can tie that to a name, then they really got you. Right. So anyway, so what this is basically saying is, is the way to combat fingerprinting is to like, let's, let's say there's two dozen different bits of information that your browser gives up about you. Some more unique than others, but let's say there's like two different, 
two, two dozen categories. What this basically says is, okay, you've got a budget. I can get to give you some of this information, but I'm not going to give you all of this information unless you get special permission from the, from the browser, from the user using the browser. So, you know, if you need to know the screen size, okay, I'll give you the screen size. If you want to know the fonts, okay, I'll give you the fonts. Wait, you want to know something else? Uh, you've gone over budget. I can't give you all that. Choose. Uh, so you, you can get three of these two dozen things, but you can't get more than that unless you get special permission, uh, which is great. So basically now that means that it can only, you know, peek at a very couple small things about you and the very really unique things like this whole canvas fingerprinting thing, which I'm not going to get to now is, you know, and it would block those by default. Because most sites don't need those things. That's, that's part of the problem is that your browser has given up all this information as much as possible on the off chance that the website you're going to might find it helpful. What this is basically saying is, okay, let's flip that on its head. Let's, let's say I'm going to give you, a, you can choose which subset, which small subset of all this information that you want, the ones that make sense to you. Uh, and you've, and I'll, and as long as you stay within budget and you only ask for a few things, I'll give you those few things. And those few things by themselves don't make you unique enough to track you. So I think that's a really cool idea. I'd never seen that before. And um, that is something Google is proposing. And I think that's got a lot of value depending on how they implement it. All right. So now, so that was the good. That was all the good. Now let's get to the bad. And it says bad conversion measurement. And conversion in this case is like when I, if I show you, let me get some terminology here. So in the ad tech industry, when you go to a website or whatever, and you see a, you see an ad, if you, if you see that ad, if they're pretty sure, like you scrolled past that ad, like it was in your scope of vision, then that's called an impression. They, they're pretty sure you saw the ad. Now, if you click on that ad and you go in, so clicking on that ad takes you to the website, you know, for whatever they're selling. So Ford F-150, you know, buy now on sale, you know, thousands of dollars off, click here and you click the button. And then you go to the Ford website, the advertiser that, that did that advertising has a presence on both those websites and, and they knew you clicked that ad and they knew you went to the other site because of third-party tracking. Uh, and now they could say, okay, great. Not only did this person see the ad, I actually got them to click on that ad and go to their website. Now, once you're on that website, they can use other things to, to determine if you actually went ahead and bought that Ford. Uh, that's an even further thing that they really like to do. But advertisers want to be able to track this thing because they need to know how good their ads are and how much, how, how many people they convert uh, how, you know, versus impressions. So if there's a thousand impressions, do I convert 1% of those people, 10% of those people, that kind of thing. So that's all ad tech talk. And those are some ad tech terms that I wanted to get out of the way before I read this section. So, all right. Uh, the bad conversion measurement, perhaps the most fleshed out proposal in the sandbox is the conversion measurement API. This is trying to tackle a problem as old as online ads. How can you know whether the people clicking on an ad ultimately buy the product it advertised? Currently, third-party cookies do most of the heavy lifting. A third-party advertiser serves an ad on behalf of a marketer and sets a cookie. On its own site, the marketer includes a snippet of code that causes the user's browser to send the cookie set earlier back to the advertiser. The advertiser knows when the user sees an ad, and it knows when the same user later visits the marketer's site and makes a purchase. In this way, advertisers can attribute ad impressions to page views and purchases that occur days or weeks later. Without third-party cookies, that attribution gets a little more complicated. 
even if an advertiser can observe traffic around the web without a way to link ad impressions to page views, it won't know how effective its campaigns are. After Apple started cracking down on advertisers' use of cookies with intelligent tracking protection, it also proposed a a privacy-preserving ad attribution solution. Now, Google is proposing something similar. Basically, advertisers will be able to mark up their ads with metadata, including destination URL, that's a URL's a web address, including a destination URL, a reporting URL, and a field for extra quote-unquote impression data. Uh, which is likely going to be a unique ID. Whenever a user sees an ad, the browser will store its metadata in a global ad table. Then, if the user visits the destination URL in the future, the browser will fire off a request to the reporting URL to report that the ad was converted. All right, so that again, that may be a little hard to follow, but it's just another way of doing tracking. So Google is basically saying, let's just let's just get rid of the whole cookie idea and come up with this this the third party cookie idea and come up with this other technique and you can build advertising marketing data into the images such that whenever I click on an ad, that information is stored somewhere uh, such that when I go to buy that product sometime at the, at the, the eventual target place, wherever that ad was going to take me, then it could be days or weeks later. Uh, it will be able to look up that same data and say, oh, that was the guy who clicked on that ad before. And now he's buying good. Now we know that there was a conversion based on that impression. So back to the article. In theory, this might not be so bad. The API should allow an advertiser to learn that someone saw its ad and then eventually landed on the page it was advertising. This can give raw numbers about the campaign's effectiveness without individually identifying information. The problem is the impression data. Apple's proposal allows marketers to store just six bits of information in a quote-unquote campaign ID. That is a number between 1 and 64. In other words, if you have six six bits of binary data, uh, every bit is a one or a zero. Uh, if you have six bits, that can represent a number from between one and 64. So this campaign ID thing uh, is a very small set of values. So the article says, this is enough to differentiate between ads for different products or between campaigns using different media. So, you know, so maybe one is a mobile ad, maybe one's a, uh, a browser ad for Mac, one maybe one's a browser ad for Windows. Uh, you know, they can come up with 64 different ways to slice and dice their advertising market. Or, you know, maybe, the, you know, this one ad features uh, a good-looking female. You know, so they're trying to, you know, they're trying to get guys to buy or, or whatever. And some other ad shows a truck going over rough terrain, you know, whatever. Um, they have, you know, the different versions of their ad. And they want to, and so they've got 64 different ways to break up their advertising stuff to, to try to figure out which of their ads were most effective. Back to the article. On the other hand, Google's ID field contains 64 bits of information, a number between 1 and 18 quintillion. This will allow advertisers to attach a unique ID to each and every ad impression they serve and potentially to connect ad conversions with individual users. If a user interacts with multiple ads from the same advertiser around the web, these IDs can help the advertiser build a profile of the user's browsing habits. Right, so... Apple was basically saying, kind of like the the fingerprinting budget thing, Apple basically says, okay, you know, we understand that you guys have multiple different ads and you kind of want to know which ad this came from. Fine. You can, you have 64 buckets <laughs> to put the, to put your ads in. Um, you've, you can get up to 64 different ways to slice and dice your advertising campaigns so that you can figure out which of those 64 methods 
is working the best. Google, on the other hand, is saying, oh, yeah, great idea, uh, but let's give them more choice. <laughs> let's give them basically an infinite number of buckets, which if you have an infinite number of buckets, I can very uniquely identify each and every person on each and every device they own. Uh, I can get it too detailed. Uh, and that's basically what the EFF is saying here. So again, this is <laughs> this is Google. Um, well, actually, I'll, I'll save my summary till we get the EFF summary. Okay, now for the ugly. And this is called FLOC, F-L-O-C. Uh, that's an acronym, capital F, capital L, little O, capital C. And it goes like this. Even worse is Google's proposal for federated learning of cohorts, or Flock. Behind the scenes, Flock is based on Google's pretty neat federated learning technology. Basically, federated learning allows users to build their own local machine learning models to sh by sharing little bits of information at a time. This allows users to reap the benefits of machine learning without sharing all of their data at once. Federated learning systems can be configured to use secure, multi-party computation and differential privacy in order to help raw data uh, in order to keep raw data verifiably private. Okay, now I gotta stop that. There's a lot of technical terms in there. Don't worry too much about what this is saying. So, so let me skip ahead. Don't you don't have to really understand that terribly well. But the idea is sort of a way to track little bits of information um, uh, in a way that can still keep information about where that is coming from private. So the article goes on to say, the problem with Flock isn't the process, it's the product. Flock would use Chrome users' browsing history to do quote-unquote clustering. At a high level, it will study browsing patterns and generate groups of similar users, then assign each user to a group called a Flock. And in this case, it's like a bird flock, it's the word Flock. At the end of the process, each browser will receive a Flock name, which identifies it as a certain kind of web user. In Google's proposal... Users would then share their flock name as an HTTP header with everyone they interact with on the web. Okay, so stopping. When I was telling you before that when you when you go to Amazon.com, your web browser tells Amazon some th certain things about you, under the covers it's using these HTTP, that's, that's the language, the communication language of the web, um, hypertext transfer protocol. And it's a text-based thing. And so they're sending various bits of information, and those informations all, all come with a, a header. So it's like, what's your user agent? That's one header. And then it gives the value. So they're talking about basically watching your browsing habits and trying to figure out what kind of a person you are. And probably things like what, what sex you are, what your general income level is, maybe what your education level is, perhaps what your political um, or political or religious values are, uh, you know, um, and in some sense, you know, the kind of things that you buy and how much you spend. Uh, those kind of things. It's going to try to, you know, kind of put you in some general groups. And then it's going to basically, once it figures you out and can put a label on you and a pretty, you know, pretty detailed label on you, it will then, by default, Chrome browser will, by default, tell every website you go what your label is. All right, let me keep reading. This is, in a word, bad for privacy. A flock name would essentially be a behavioral credit score, a tattoo on your digital forehead that gives a succinct summary of who you are, what you like, where you go, what you buy, and with whom you associate. The flock names will likely be inscrutable to users, but could reveal incredibly sensitive information to third parties. Trackers will be able to use that information however they want, including to augment their own behind-the-scenes profiles of the users. In other words, what they're saying there is, Many of the websites you go to today are already tracking, you know, Google, Facebook, uh, Amazon, 
Yahoo, there's most, almost every one of these websites is trying to glean as much information about you as possible. And, or are you contracting third parties to do it? And those third parties collect that information and then turn around and sell it. Uh, so they may already have a lot of information on you. Um, so, you know, so this just basically adds to that information that they maybe couldn't have found out on their own, but you're, you're, you're happily telling them and everyone who will listen this information. Uh, back to the article, Google says that the browser can choose to leave sensitive data from browsing history out of the learning process. But as the company itself acknowledges, different data is sensitive to different people. A one size fits all approach to privacy will leave many users at risk. Additionally, many sites currently choose to respect their users' privacy by refraining from working with third-party trackers. Flock would rob these websites of such a choice. Basically, some websites like say, look, I'm not going to track you. I don't want to track you. That's not what I do. I, would, I respect your privacy. But, but if this is implemented, everybody who comes to their website from a Chrome browser, they're going to be saying, hey, this guy likes this and he's from here. And, you know, they're going to have to, like, plug their ears and say, la, 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 because <laughs> they'll be given the information that they didn't want to have. Uh, okay, so back to the article. Furthermore, flock names will be more meaningful to those who are already capable of, observe, of observing activity around the web. Companies with access to large tracking networks, in other words, Google, will be able to draw their own conclusions about the ways that users from a certain flock tend to behave. Discriminatory advertisers will be able to identify and filter out flocks which represent vulnerable populations. Predatory lenders will learn which flocks are most prone to financial hardship. Flock is the opposite of privacy-preserving technology. Today, trackers follow you around the web, skulking in the digital shadows in order to guess at what kind of person you might be. In Google's future, they will sit back, relax, and let your browser do the work for them. Yes, so that is basically what they're saying here. Is, is Google says, okay, the, um, to preserve privacy, which is a, a ridiculous starting point, they said, we will track some generic information about you uh, and come up with a profile on you that doesn't identify you, but has a lot of useful information about you that marketers might want to know. And then once we've established your profile, we will tell every website you go from that point on what your profile is. Uh, so yeah, that, that is bad. And now they actually, there's good, bad, the ugly. We've done that. Now they've actually got one called the UG, as in U-G-H, the UG. And it's, it's P-I-G-I-N. It's an acronym. And I'm I'm going to guess it's not Piggin, but probably Pigeon is probably the way they choose to pronounce that. But I don't know. I'm just reading the article. But I'm going to say Pigeon. Um, so from the article, it says, That brings us to Pigeon. While Flock promises to match each user with a single opaque group identifier, Pigeon would have each browser track a set of quote-unquote interest groups that it believes its users belongs to. Then, whenever the browser makes a request to an advertiser, it can send along a list of the user's interests to enable better targeting. Google's proposal devotes a lot of space to discussing the privacy risks of Pigeon. However, the protections it discusses fall woefully short. The authors propose using cryptography, fancy math, uh, to ensure that there are at least 1,000 people in an interest group before disclosing a user's membership in it, as well as limiting the maximum number of interests disclosed at a time to five. This limitation doesn't hold up to much scrutiny. Membership in five distinct groups, each which contains just a few thousand people, will be more than enough to uniquely identify a huge portion of users on the web. Furthermore, malicious actors will be able to game the system in a number of ways, including to learn about a user's membership in sensitive categories. While the proposal gives a passing mention to using differential privacy, it doesn't begin to describe how, specifically, 
that might alleviate the myriad privacy risks Pigeon raises. What Google's kind of saying is, again, this is all under the premise, under the assumption that we need to track people to some degree. For the whole web to work, for advertising to even work anymore, we have to know something about you. So let's find some way to get that information about you in a way that supposedly is more privacy protecting. And so what they're what what they're proposing here is like, okay, we're, we're going to throw you into bins of, of at least a thousand people. And so here's a thousand people that are probably um, looking for a new car. Uh, here's a thousand women that are probably pregnant. Here's a thousand college students, uh, that sort of thing. And we're going to put you in these categories and then we're going to let websites, you know, we're going to put you in different bins and then we're going to let websites request up to five different categories that they they would want to know about you. Now think about that. So let's say I am looking for a car. I'm a college student. I'm pregnant. <laughs> and that, I only did three there, but think of two other categories. Once you do the the Venn diagram, like you get all the overlapping circles of these different things, that becomes a pretty small group. In fact, it could be just one person. So anyway, back, back to the article. It says, Google touts Pigeon as a win for transparency and user control. This may be true to a limited extent. It would be nice to know what information advertisers use to target particular ads, and it would be useful to be able to opt out of specific interest groups one by one. But like Flock, Pigeon does nothing to address the bad ways that online tracking currently works. Instead, it would provide trackers with a massive new stream of information they could use to build or augment their own user profiles. The ability to remove specific interests from your browser might be nice, but it won't do anything to prevent every company that's already collected it from storing, sharing, or selling that data. Furthermore, these, feature, uh, these features of Pigeon would likely become another option that most users don't touch. Defaults matter. While Apple and Mozilla work to make their browsers private out of the box, Google continues to invent new privacy-invasive practices for users to opt out of. And I talked about this recently, the tyranny of the defaults. Um, Sure, it's, you know, it's kind of nice to say, well, look, you know, you don't have to do this. We'll give you a way to turn it off. All you have to do is go in the preferences, go to this tab, go into that thing, click that button, open this menu and click this other thing. See, that's easy, (laughs) right? Nobody ever does that. So, you know, so it's kind of a, a handy way for these companies to say that they're allowing you to protect your privacy when in reality, nobody ever does these things and they keep changing them. They keep, they keep moving these things. Uh, so it's really hard to stay on top of. And it's, since it's opt out instead of opt in, people just don't do it. And so Google gets everything they want or Facebook or these other companies do they all do the same thing. All right. So let me wrap up this article. If the privacy sandbox won't actually help users, why is Google proposing all these changes? Google can probably see which way the wind is blowing. Safari's intelligent tracking protection and Firefox's enhanced tracking protection have severely curtailed third-party trackers' access to data. Meanwhile, users and lawmakers continue to demand stronger privacy protections from big tech. While Chrome still dominates the browser market, Google might suspect that the days of unlimited access to third-party cookies are numbered. As a result, Google has apparently decided to defend its business model on two fronts. First, it's continuing to argue that third-party cookies are actually fine, and companies like Apple and Mozilla, who would restrict trackers' access to user data, will end up harming user privacy. This argument is absurd. But unfortunately, as long as Chrome remains the most popular browser in the world, Google will be able to single-handedly dictate whether cookies remain a viable option for tracking most users. At the same time, Google 
seems to be hedging its bets. The privacy sandbox proposals for conversion, measurement, flock, and pigeon are each aimed at replacing one of the existing ways that third-party cookies are used for targeted ads. Google is brainstorming ways to continue serving targeted ads in a post-third-party cookie world. If cookies go the way of pop-up ads, Google's targeting business will continue as usual. The sandbox isn't about your privacy. It's about Google's bottom line. At the end of the day, Google is an advertising company that happens to make a browser. And that's the end of the article. And of course, Google makes way more than a browser. Did, you know, Google Docs, Google Calendar, Gmail, uh, Waze, Android. Google's got its hand in all sorts of things. So that's the end of the article. Um, again, my take on this is pretty much the same as EFFs. And that is that Google is feeling the pinch from uh, Safari and Firefox and you know, extensions like uBlock Origin and Privacy Badger that I recommend all the time. Uh, and in fact, Google is proposing changes that are going to limit the effectiveness of those things. And basically, uBlock Origin uh, as a tracking and ad blocker will stop working. So Google's got a, you know, got a cash cow to protect. They have, you know, they've gone into the business of knowing as much about you as possible and then turning around and selling that knowledge to people that want to advertise and saying, I know all about this guy. You want to hit this certain kind of people? I can give you those people. And, and so they're seeing their model get threatened and to head that off. And this is, we see this all the time in, in, in the world of lobbying and regulations. The, you know, when they start to get the idea that if they don't do something soon, that the government's going to crack down on them, they step up and say, oh yeah, you're right. Oh, oh you're so right. Uh, you're right. We totally believe that privacy is super, super important that we totally agree. You know what? We are the experts here. Let me, let's, let's, let me give you some proposals on how we can, you know, better preserve the user's privacy. When in reality, uh, what they're really proposing is ways that allow them to keep tracking you. Um, sound, you know, they look good on the surface. Uh, they do a lot of hand waving. Um, but at the end, of, at the end of the day, uh, it's just a way for them to head off regulations that would really hurt. And this is why I recommend that you use Firefox Safari, by the way, if you're on a Mac and you just have one computer, uh, Safari uh, is pretty good too. Uh, I still prefer Firefox personally, cause it works on, uh, both Mac and PC and they're both actually doing some great work on privacy and they keep ratcheting things up. And that brings us to our tip of the week. And the tip of the week, beyond just using Firefox, is a new extension that, that Mozilla Firefox has put out that basically is a VPN built into your web browser. It's called the Firefox VPN extension. And I, I don't know if they're eventually going to build this in by default, but if you can go get it right now, um, if you go to search... Uh, and if you go to Firefox add-ons, it's probably listed right there, actually. Uh, I've got it right in front of me. I'll look. If you go to Tools, Add-ons, it doesn't show at the list. If I do Recommendations, I guess I don't see it there. So you may have to, you may have to search on it. Um, but what you're going to search on there is Firefox VPN extension. And you can install this browser plugin. And it, now, it does require you to have a Firefox account. Um, so, yeah, that's one more account you need to do. Um, and a password to create that. Uh, and of course you'll use, you know, um, your password manager to remember that password and probably generate that password. Uh, so it's not that big of a deal. Uh, and by the way, if you sign up for a Firefox account, you actually get some other cool stuff too. So if you've got more than one computer or, you know, if you use, you know, Firefox's, uh, browser on your phone, as well as your computer, 
uh, and you have a bunch of favorites or bookmarks, uh, having a Firefox account will allow those to synchronize between the two. So if you add a bookmark on one, it'll show up on the other. If you change a bookmark on one or delete it, it'll uh, change or delete on the other one. Uh, I've got so many computers, I find this extremely handy. Uh, you can also do things like that. You can synchronize the tabs across things if you want. So whatever is showing on one browser will, on one computer will be the exact same tabs on the other computer. Uh, you can synchronize your preferences or your extensions. Uh, you can also synchronize passwords in history, but I wouldn't do that because I would never use the, even though I like Firefox, I would not use their built-in password manager um, as my password manager. Uh, so I wouldn't be using it anyway, so there'd be no point in synchronizing passwords. Um, but anyway, so having a Firefox account actually has a lot of other benefits. So you have to have an account for this to work. You sign into your account. Uh, and then behind the scenes, when you have this thing enabled for your web browser and for your web browser only, not for your whole computer, just for your web browser, any you know websites you go to, any, any exchanges you have with those websites is all run through. It's not actually technically a, uh, what you'd normally think of as a VPN, um, but it's still an encrypted tunnel that means that your ISP whether it be your mobile carrier or your uh, your cable company or whoever, can no longer see what you're doing. Um, and they're, they've partnered with Cloudflare, another company that's doing some great work that I really like, uh, to make this happen. And now, of course, as I've said before, when we talked about VPNs, what you're really doing there is you're trading your trust in your ISP for the trust in the VPN provider. Uh, but in this case, I trust them. So uh, it's cool. You don't have to use it, but the tip of the week, you can give it a shot just download, download the extension. I think it turns on by default, but you can turn it off whenever you want and just realize like, like any other VPN, it's going to, you know, cause some slight changes to your browsing habits, right? So when you go to that website, it's going to say, Hey, I don't recognize you anymore because your IP address has changed and it doesn't recognize that IP address because the VPN makes it look like it's coming from somewhere else. Uh, so they're going to probably challenge you again and say, you know, do you want to trust this computer and yada, 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 you know, so you get those kind of things, those kind of things that happen when you use a VPN. But I'm using it right now on my on my computer. I just have it on all the time, um, and I'm going to see how it goes. Uh, you know, and if I run into some weirdness, I can always turn it off for that website or whatever. So that is my tip of the week, uh, along with you know, just use Firefox, <laughs> stop using Chrome. The reasons are just piling up uh, for making that switch. So uh, if you want, you can go to my website, firewallsdon'tstopdragons.com, and you can search on uh, browsers in there or Firefox in there. I've got a couple articles in there about this with even more reasons to switch. So uh, anyway, so that's that's our story for the week and why, you know, Google's privacy sandbox isn't all it's cracked up to be. All right. Thanks for listening. I know that was somewhat technical. I hope you kind of followed me through all that stuff. If you took away nothing else, hopefully you'll just understand that, you you know, if you care at all about privacy, uh, you need to stop using Google Chrome and switch to Firefox uh, or Safari, I guess, if you're on a Mac. So uh, next week, we've got the first of a two-part interview with uh, Jeremy Scott from EPIC. That's the Electronic Privacy Information Center. Uh, we're going to talk about facial recognition technology and how it's exploding in use all over the place and why it's going to cause some problems and why we really kind of need to get ahead of this and, you know, before it gets out of hand. <laughs> and it's, it, it's, it's already getting out of hand. It's you know, it's got some cool uses, but man, it can, it's got a lot of abuses as well. So that's a really interesting interview. It'll be a two-part interview. So tune in next week for the first part of that. Uh, then I'll have, probably have another new show after that. And then after that, I've got another interview waiting to, to, uh, to broadcast about cyber insurance. And that's, that was actually very interesting. I talked with the CEO of coalition, 
uh, who as a cyber insurance company, and they insure individuals up through small and medium-sized businesses, uh, and probably, I think, some large businesses as well. And and how that relates to the recent ransomware epidemic. And so they, it's really interesting. So uh, anyway, that'll be coming up in a few weeks. So tune into that. And I've got, I've got actually a lot of interviews coming up. So uh, go right now if you haven't already and go to uh, your podcast app and subscribe. That way you make sure you get every one of these every week. And you know, tell your friends and family and all that kind of good stuff too. All right, that'll do it this week. Thanks for tuning in. And as always, stay safe out there and don't get caught with your garbage down.